centuries. They have been trying to keep us where they want us. Why do demons disappear when you die? And yet humans leave these nasty skeletons behind. We'll get our children back. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. Each week, we'll be discussing HBO's new series, but we'll also be diving deep into Lyra's world with help from Philip Pullman's original trilogy. But first, let's introduce ourselves. We're the hosts of The Authority. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Dan Coyce, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. I'm Laura Miller, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. Hi, Laura. Hi. So before we get started, maybe we should present our uh, bona fides. Laura, can you start? Okay, well, I read Philip Pullman's original trilogy when it first came out because I started to hear so many great things about it from the different book editors and children's librarians that I knew. Um, And then I wrote a profile of Philip Pullman about 14 years ago for The New Yorker. It was when the original movie adaptation of The Golden Compass came out. So I have... Uh, met Philip Pullman. I have spoken to him for many hours. I have ridden in his car and been in his house, and I have eaten pea soup made by Philip Pullman himself. Laura, uh, who's Slate's book critic, also wrote Slate's review of this new HBO series, which ran on Friday. Extremely well qualified. Uh, My qualifications are that I've read the books 10 million times and I named my daughter Lyra. All right. so (laughs) Sounds good to me. Uh, Today on The Authority, we're going to talk about episode one of the HBO series. It's called Lyra's Jordan. It covers basically up to page 74 of The Golden Compass, which is the first book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. It introduces us to many of our major characters. It sets the story in motion. We're also going to discuss Jordan College, the place that Lyra was raised. How does it reflect the ways that Lyra's world is different from ours? On The Authority, we're going to do our best to talk about the world of the books without spoiling the story of the books or the series. So we'll fill in the blanks for those of you who haven't read the books in a while or at all. We'll discuss things like demons, Egyptians, dust, Panzerbjorn in great detail, but we won't give away what's in store for Lyra or Asriel or anyone else. Nevertheless, some stuff we talk about might be considered spoiler-adjacent by people who have a serious allergy to knowing anything about a story ahead of time. So to those people, I say, read the books. All right, so episode one, Lyra's Jordan. Let's start, Laura, by talking about the three main characters we meet in this episode, the characters who will really be driving this story for some time to come. And the first, of course, is our heroine, Lyra. How would you describe Lyra? Well, Pullman describes her as a as a little savage, she has been not raised by wolves, but raised by scholars who are absent-minded and more concerned with other things, although they are very, very fond of her. And so she's been allowed to run wild. We see a little bit of that in the series with Lyra running all around the ancient confines of Jordan College with her friend, her best friend, Roger. But what's not quite in there is Lyra's history with all of the other children in Oxford, which is a rich and um, highly conflicted uh, fantasy realm for her in many ways. She and the children from other colleges or from other parts of the town, there's a big town and gown clash. They're always 
at mock war with each other, and she has a lot of adventures, and she's always getting dirty. She's kind of a tomboy, and she's wild, and she's defiant, and she's curious, but she is not bookish at all. Yeah, we see a little bit of that in the series in this premiere episode in her, as you say, running around the roofs. We see her lack of bookishness and how bored she is during her lesson with the librarian of Jordan College, one of the scholars who's meant to teach her. But yeah, we don't see that sort of rich relationship she has with the whole town of Oxford where they're you know, throwing mud clods at the river kids uh, after lying in wait for them. Um, but we do get a sense of the sort of a affection that she has for the place and the way that she she knows every nook and cranny of uh, Jordan College. She's played by Daphne Keene, a young actress who I think was uh, 14 or so when this was shot. Um, her demon is uh, Pantalaimon, who, like all demons of kids who have not quite come of age, is changeable. Uh, your demon, of course, is your alter ego, is sort of your soul in another body in the form of an animal in this world that His Dark Materials takes place in. Um, when you're a kid, that demon is changeable. It can change from second to second to any animal you can think of, from a, a moth to you know a large dog to, who knows, maybe something bigger. Do you ever think about what animal Pan will settle as when he stops changing form? I think about it. Pan and I talk about it. Pan thinks he'll be a lion. I don't. I think he'll settle as a sloth or a guinea pig. You said you wanted something cunning like a fox. And you? What do you think Cecilia will settle as? Oh, a house martin or... When you come of age in this world, your demon settles, settles on a shape. And when, in fact, we see a, a little ceremony where this happens for another child at, at one point in this episode. We'll talk about that in a moment. I love the description that Fulman gives of her as a little savage. And that has always been the way that I have thought of this character. She knows that she is good at lying. She thinks of herself as a kind of faithless person, um, a person who can do anything bad because she's already sort of lost. And so uh, she often tries to protect others close to her by lying in their stead or being deceptive in their stead. She, in this version of Lyra, yearns for adventure. Um, she finds Jordan College a little bit stifling and wants to go north I'm curious how this portrayal is going to evolve. I mean, in an hour in an HBO series where there's so much you have to establish, all you really get from Lyra at this point is tomboy, a little bored at school, yearns for adventure. Um, but there's so much that is rich about her and her conception of herself that's often the hardest thing to portray you know, on a screen. I really like the actress Daphne Keene in this part. I feel like she's a much better physical match to to Lyra or my idea of Lyra than Dakota Blue Richards, who is the sort of more dainty and pretty actress who played her in the film version. There's something sort of hungry about her yeah. that I think fits the character. She's not interested in being, she's interested in doing and experiencing. You know, she she's not that interested in what other people think of her. And I I feel that that this actress really gets that across. She has a great energy. I, I mean I'm I see what you mean about 
Lyra having an inner life that's kind of hard to represent. But I think we're going to see that more through what she does than through how she simply emotes or behaves emotionally, because I don't think she knows herself that well. Mm. Um, there is this moment in the in the first episode where she meets Mrs. Coulter, and that's her first encounter with this kind of very alluring femininity, which kind of overwhelms her the way Miss, Mrs. Coulter is able to overwhelm so many people. Lyra, do you know why I'm here? The master's asked if I can find a place for you. And naturally... I wanted to meet you first. And now that I've met you, I like you, and I want to offer you a position as my assistant. Now, you'll need to learn fast, and I won't take any slacking, but I think with your enthusiasm and my know-how, we could make quite the team. We'd go to the North? Well, we'll go to London first, and you'd have to be prepared to leave tomorrow. It's not really clear if that's going to mark a transition from for her from from her becoming very self-conscious which is what Mrs. Coulter is she's always calculating her effect on other people and it, and you almost are kind of surprised that she is so taken with her i don't know it 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 suggests that there are these there that there's this other possibility for her that has not really been achieved yet it is a tough task to show the inner life of someone who, as you say, doesn't exactly know herself. Um, you mentioned Mrs. Coulter, so let's talk about Mrs. Coulter. She is a glamorous woman who sort of strides into Jordan College, an environment where there aren't really that many women at all. There's, um, you know, we see when we see all the scholars assembled in the retiring room, there's no women among them. Um, Lyra. You know, in the books, talks about how you know other schools have women scholars, and she finds them quite silly because she's such a Jordan College snob. Um, and so, this vision of like a very assertive femininity that strides into this environment and and completely takes charge of that environment is very striking to her. Um, tell us a little bit more about Mrs. Coulter and what we know about her. Well, she's a mysterious figure. Um, we know earlier in the books that there's something sinister about her. She has a position that is very unclear. She seems very obviously to be powerful, but we don't know the source of her power, especially since she seems to live in a world where men occupy most of the positions of authority. And she is incredibly charming. I think that the actress who plays her, Ruth Wilson, is not quite as beautiful as the Mrs. Coulter who's described in the book, who's just whose physical presence is just sort of overwhelming to people because she's so beautiful. Right, like men swoon at her feet often. Yes, yes. But the compensation that we get for that, because in the movie she was played by Nicole Kidman, who does have who does possess that kind of brute physical beauty. <laughs> But Ruth Wilson is so great at conveying her charm, how you can both feel how effective it is and yet at the same time mistrust it when it's not turned on you. And so we see her charming Lyra by pretending that she doesn't know how to behave at the fancy dinner, the college dinner, and how Lyra is going to have to show her which fork to use, although, of course, she obviously knows which (laughs) fork to use in any situation. 
and um, you know, questioning her and getting so much information out of her and, you know, manipulating her and, you know, you can feel a little uneasy and yet at the same time just uh, understand how someone could be completely wowed by this person. Right. What we understand from this episode, we understand that there's something else going on besides what we see because we as adults can see the way that the ways that she's dazzling Lyra. But that doesn't mean yes. we aren't dazzled ourselves as well. And she's very, exactly. very good at that. Um, her demon is a golden monkey um, who in the books is never named. I don't know if he'll be named um, in in this series eventually. Uh, demons uh, almost always are the opposite sex from the person. Um, so Mrs. Coulter has a male monkey demon, whereas Lyra's demon Pantalaemon is a boy. Um, and uh, he's appropriately creepy as all monkeys are. Um, <laughs> and so I think the easiest way to know that something's up with Mrs. Coulter is that just like one shot of her demon just gives me the fucking creeps. <laughs> all right. So the third main character we meet here is actually the first one we truly meet in this episode. We see him in the very first shot, basically flying into Jordan college some years before on the night of a great flood. Uh, it's Lord Asriel. Um, he's played by James McAvoy. That first scene actually comes from the Book of Dust, the uh, the first book in that new trilogy that Philip Pullman is actually in the middle of writing. Uh, the first book in that was called La Belle Sauvage, and it's an it's a scene in that where, in the midst of a great flood that affects all of England around the time of Lyra's birth, Lord Asriel, who uh, is is Lyra's uncle, drops her off at Jordan College and to the master and asks for academic sanctuary for her. That isn't in the original His Dark Materials books. It's alluded to, um, but as a prologue to this story, it really sort of sets the tone. He's described in the books as a tall man with powerful shoulders, a fierce dark face, and eyes that seem to flash and glitter with savage laughter. It was a face to be dominated by or to fight never a face to patronize or pity. He is cruel in the books. What's driving him and what do you think of him so far in this HBO series? Well, I do feel that James McAvoy is miscast as this character who is um, meant to be this sort of imposing um, figure. He's he's based on Lord Byron, like so many characters of this type. You know, James McAvoy is on the weedy side, but um, but he is also a very excellent actor. And so I'm sure that he will continue to be more persuasive in this role than he might seem at first glance. He is sort of the personification of a certain kind of stormy rom romantic hero who is obsessive and brooding and kind of remote. And that's his role in Lyra's life. He is her the only relative that she knows she has. And he is not around very much. And he's incredibly dashing. And everything that he does is something she longs to be part of. But he doesn't really have time for her. And he literally has that line in this episode where he's, you know, ready to head back off to the the Arctic for his further explorations in this forbidden science that he is obsessed with. And 
he says to her, Lyra, I just don't have time for you right now. And I think that is sort of the essence of, of their relationship at this point. He He's not really paying attention to her. And I was just reading back over my transcripts of my interviews with Philip when I was researching this piece. And it's striking that you know, his father, who who died when Philip was fairly small, is a similar figure. He was an RAF pilot. He was, you know, always off, sent on these missions that, you know, were not totally clear and to his young children seemed incredibly glamorous and adult and dangerous. And um, he was supposedly shot down over Africa in his plane. And so, Philip never really knew him. And I think that there's probably a certain amount of that in Lord Asriel in both the book and this adaptation, just as Lyra has a little autobiographical thing stolen from Philip, who, when he went to Oxford, used to run around on the roof of his college to the um, dismay and outrage of the fellows of the college. So um, so I think that there that there is this definite, idea of the distant paternal figure to Lord Asriel that is both, well, I think it's actually a fairly common sort of mid-century relationship to, to fathers. They were often distant f- figures. Um, I'm not in love with James McAvoy in this yet. Uh, as you say, he does seem a little miscast physically, but I also think that he's not miscast exactly because I think his casting and the way they deliver him in this episode Uh, is one of the only examples I saw in this premiere of a kind of softening of the source material. It seems Mm. like one goal of this series is to make Lord Asriel a little bit less challenging of a character, uh, a little bit less of a character who, as you say, doesn't actually really care about other people. A myriad of worlds of which the Magisterium controls only one. A myriad of worlds made visible only through that most distasteful of substances, dust. Clear the room. None of us can hear this. I'm afraid you have to hear this, Master. These are heretical discussions. Necessary discussion. He has this line as he's leaving Oxford on his Zeppelin, um, where Roger, Lyra's friend, runs up to the Zeppelin after he's thrown Lyra off and said she can't come north with him. And Roger's yelling up to him as the Zeppelin motors are roaring, and, and Roger yells about Lyra, she's special. And Asriel yells back, everyone's special, which just struck me as a thing that the Lord Azrael I know from the books would never say in one million <laughs> years. He absolutely does not think that anyone is special. <laughs> Really, and he has little regard or concern for for anyone, as you say. That just struck me as so odd, yeah. and I'm curious to see the ways in which this character is going to shift from the that sort of archetypal character that we were given in the books. Well, I, I think you could say that saying that everyone is special is pretty much the equivalent of saying no one is special. He may, in principle, agree with with this. He has certain, he has principles, you know, he's not merely in search of his own pleasure or power. He is consumed with the idea of, um, you know, sort of scientific discovery or, 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 or conquering the unknown, which is why he's so obsessed with 
dust and the north and these sort of, I, I want to say scientific pursuits, but they're sort of a cross or a weird fusion of science and exploration and adventure. But, you know, he wants to know. And in that sense, he is your sort of classic Prometheus figure, where all he cares about is getting the knowledge of fire, no matter what price has to be paid, including by himself. And um, he wants the forbidden. He wants to, you know, you can see where Lyra gets this from. You know, she wants, she wants to break the rules, and that is something that he also wants to do. He's not exactly selfish. He's just one of those people that thinks that because he's in pursuit of a higher good, it doesn't really matter how he behaves. As you write in your review of the series, the trilogy and Pullman's sort of worldview is really remarkable in children's literature uh, because it places value on adulthood. It's not it's like so many children's books, it's not uh, memorializing childhood as like a lost Eden that we should all wish we could return to. For Pullman and for the characters, is particularly Lord Asriel in this book, right? To be an adult, as you say, is to gain access to a kind of presence that is both painful and splendid. It is to become more real. And seeing this character go through that, a character who I think we are going to follow through the course, this Egyptian character who I think we're going to follow through the course of the story as we do Asriel and Lyra and everyone else, seemed crucial. And I was glad that that was in there. I agree. I thought this was a wonderful scene, partly because it balances the divided upper-class community of the college and the magisterium and um, Lord Asriel and his and his relationships to the entire rest of the world with the communalism of the Egyptians. So we get a sense of them as this very tightly united tribe. They're defined for us as sort of outcasts who have found unity with each other. And it also gives us a sense of what the settling of a demon means in Lyra's world. We can be pretty sure that this is only one of many coming-of-age ceremonies that exist in Lyra's world for this particular moment in someone's life, just the way that we have all kinds of ceremonies in our own world for the coming of age of people when they're around 13 or 14 or 15 or whatever we decide that transition point right. is. And so we get both it, – it's, it's a very economical piece of storytelling because it lets us know this fact about demons, which is very, very important, and it lets us understand what it is that's so – compelling about the Egyptians. I suppose Lyra's debutante ball would, is, has already been scheduled and will be coming up shortly. <laughs> um, it also introduces us to the gobblers because at the end of that ceremony, Egyptian boy is kidnapped. And later in the episode, Lyra's friend Roger, the kitchen boy, is also kidnapped by these characters who uh, we are briefly referred to that that Roger says everyone knows they're stealing children all over England. Lyra claims that they're made up, that they're not real, and she presumably will soon learn that they are in fact real because they've now taken her best friend, Roger. Um, and the episode gives us some looks at life at Jordan College, so I want to zoom in a little bit and take a closer look at this place, 
Jordan College, um, which is a home to Lyra, which has been home to Lyra for 11 years, and uh, which the episode ends with them all leaving. But it still seems like a formative, crucial location, both for the plot and for the sort of overarching conflict that's at the heart of this story. So can you tell us a little bit about Jordan College and, and what relationship it bears to the actual Oxford of of our world? Sure. Well, it's sort of based on Exeter College, which is where Philip Pullman um, took his undergraduate degree. The way colleges work in Oxford is that while they're all bound together in the in the university, they are, as you said, semi-independent, and they have scholars or fellows who live in them, and undergraduates also live in them for at least some of their their time at the college. And um, so they provide a, a smaller academic community within the larger community of the university. And people have loyalties to them that can run very deep. They also are a little bit like aristocrats in that they own a lot of property and get a lot of income from land, either renting out land to people who use it for various reasons or or obtaining other income from, from the properties that they own, which is how the colleges in Oxford support themselves. Yeah, there's a mention in the book that one of that Jordan College like owns an office block in Manchester or something in addition to everything else. Yes, and there's a there's a story about how you could walk from one place to another, I think from Oxford to London, only setting foot on land that Jordan College owns and I, I believe that was set of another college at Oxford, but I can't remember remember whether it was Christchurch or, or Maudlin, but there's a there's another college that has that reputation. Exeter is not the oldest or the richest college in, at Oxford. There's a couple of others who have claims to both of those titles, and I don't think there's anyone that has both. But in this story, it is the sort of quintessential Oxford college, except, and this is one of the funny things that has often um, puzzled me about both the television version of Jordan College and also the book version is that there don't seem to be any undergraduates there. Um, everyone who is living in the college is an older fellow or a, well they're called fellows at Oxford and they're called scholars here. but they don't seem to be teaching anybody but Lyra, <laughs> which I find sort of odd. I, you know if this was the average Oxford college, she would also be surrounded by 18 year old men, which I don't know, it might be weird in its own way. Um, but in the method of teaching is a, a kind of a one-on-one -on -one thing where people write, the student writes a paper and then reads it aloud to their dawn and that, or their tutor rather, and that's the way that you are educated there. So the scene where Lyra is being lectured by the librarian one-on-one -on -one is actually pretty close to um, to how you would be educated at Oxford, but there don't seem to be any lectures. It's just a, it's a kind of a peculiar institution in that he's only, you know, Pullman only put in the things that he found interesting for his story. And so in some ways it's not actually that close to what an, what an Oxford college would be. We do see other versions of Jordan college in some other books that Pullman has written in the Book of Dust trilogy, we get a slightly better sense of what it is like to be a student in that 
place. But yes, in, in the world of these books, like none of these scholars ever actually have to like teach any kids. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're much more interested in like talking about the latest developments in experimental theology, uh, the field of which Jordan College is apparently the leading research institution in the world. Experimental theology is, is, uh, is sort of the, de- the defining academic discipline that drives the, the scholarly questions behind this book, uh, and is the field in which this question of dust, the 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 thing that Lord Asriel shows all the collected scholars in the retiring room on his slides of the photos he took while he was up in the north, that's what dust pertains to as this field of experimental theology. Jordan College is described in the books as uh, a place that had never been planned. It had grown piecemeal with past and present overlapping at every spot. And the final effect was one of jumbled and squalid grandeur. And then I want to read one other bit, which I just really, really love uh, and has always really stuck with me from these books uh, and is a great example of what Pullman is re- one of the many things that Pullman is really good at. What was above ground was only a small fraction of the whole. Like some enormous fungus whose root system extended over acres, Jordan, finding itself jostling for space above ground with with other colleges at the university, had begun sometime in the Middle Age to spread below the surface. Tunnels, shafts, vaults, cellars, staircases had so hollowed out the earth below Jordan and for some yards around it that there was almost as much air below ground as above. Jordan College stood on a sort of froth of stone. And we see that as Lyra and Roger run around the tunnels and chambers and, in fact, into a crypt underneath Jordan College where Lyra hides uh, inside like a stone vault uh, and surprises Roger uh, with like lying next to bones. She's extremely not fearful. (laughs) Um, But like – that idea of a world underground that's as rich and full as what you see above uh, is a pretty – it's a pretty potent image and it really gives you a sense of the the age of this institution um, and, and the long tradition behind it. We see that uh, long tradition and, and a little bit of the fierce independence of Jordan College, not only – within the context of Oxford, but within the the larger geopolitics of the England that we're in, in this world. In the scene where Lord Asriel drops Lyra off at Jordan College when she's a baby uh, and and demands of the master that Lyra fall under the principle of scholastic sanctuary. Can you explain that? Yeah, scholastic sanctuary, which is not really defined in the original trilogy, you get a lot more of it in La Belle Sauvage, is Let's be honest, it's based on a kind of sanctuary that you could only get in churches in medieval Europe. And um, one of the funny things about the way that Oxford is represented in the His Dark Materials trilogy is that its past as a fundamentally religious institution has been kind of erased by Pullman because there's a very strong anti-clerical argument in the trilogy as a whole and his work overall. In Oxford, in the real Oxford, for the longest time, you had to be a member of the Church of England. You had to have some kind of clerical role to even teach, which is why uh, Charles Dodgson, aka Lewis Carroll, was a reverend. And um, you couldn't, and they couldn't marry the 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 fellows and dons could not be married for quite a while uh, until basically the very late 
19th century, it had its roots in a monastic tradition. And part of that tradition was a respite from secular authority where you could go into a cathedral usually and claim sanctuary. Uh, This was often done by people who were arrested or wanted for uh, theft or murder, and then the secular authorities could not come into that space and take you away or commit any violence against you in that space. Now, in this version, in, in the version of His Dark Materials, the colleges are a secular shelter from the authority of the church, the magisterium. So, it's a kind of an interesting twist on on the history of our world, but it's a it's and it's a fragile institution. I mean, it was not in 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 our world. It was not true that the church could always protect you from the state. For example, Thomas a Becket was killed in a cathedral, but um, but there was a certain respect for the authority of the church in protecting people and in. The His Dark Materials world, there is a respect for scholastic sanctuary from the magisterium or the church authority that is not nothing. You know, they, they, there's a pause in the in, to the idea of violating that, and that is what Asriel is relying on when he delivers Lyra to the master of Jordan College and says, you know, protect her and in. In the Book of Dust, I think he says something like, the master says, but she's not a scholar. And then Asriel says, well, you have to make her one. This is the best I can do. Um, So, it gives a certain extra meaning to all those classes that Lyra is forced to take and how important they are. And that idea that the the school provides a kind of shelter from the the power of the magisterium – but a tenuous one and one that is eroding as the magisterium grows in power is the same idea that animates – the master's attempt to poison Asriel. And you know, one of the sort of twists of this first episode that I really have always liked, or this first story beat in the books that I've always have really liked, is that the same thing that that Asriel invoked to protect Lyra is the thing now that almost costs him his life because the master feels he has to protect Jordan College and its very tenuous standing within the larger geopolitics of this country against the growing power of the magisterium and that Asriel now, the news that he is going to bring and the things he's going to ask Jordan College to do pose a threat to that to that freedom, that, you know, that academic and scholastic freedom that he talks about in his um, speech to the other scholars. And so the the relationship between the magisterium and Jordan College and the magisterium and the various secular worlds that stand in, in some regard in opposition to it the, that we're going to encounter over the course of this book uh, or over the course of the series and that we do encounter over the course of the books is ever shifting. And the the balance of power in those relationships is always changing. And right now we're in a moment of ascending power for the magisterium. Uh, it becomes clear when we see that shot inside the magisterium where uh, these two officials are standing in front of what appears to be the like the most like the uh, like the the super the New Orleans Superdome, except <laughs> for that it's all gilded uh, and it's full of seats for like church authorities. Like oh. 
this is the level of like power and wealth that the magisterium yes. has. And the and the fascist architecture, which is just yeah. like if you have any familiarity with the 20th century, you're just like, oh no, this can't right. be good. <laughs> these guys, these guys maybe don't have everyone's best interests at heart. Yeah. And the way that the master has to navigate that is something I find really fascinating. And Lyra's relationship with him is so charged and difficult because and our relationship with him is. And so this picture we get of the master and how conflicted he is and how our view evolves just over the course of this episode is pretty well handled, I think. You know, he tries to poison this person who's important to Lyra, but he also clearly cares for her, not only in the way he treats her, but in the way he talks about her with other people. And at the end of the episode, he gives her a truly precious gift, an alethiometer, something that he says there are only a, a few exist in this world. It's very important. We don't know a lot about this device right now, but we know that it's a crucial gift that he's given her. And we know that what the master tells Lyra, which is also a line straight out of the book, which is it tells the truth. It's extraordinary. What does it do? It tells you the truth. That pan and you will have to learn by yourselves. But please know that it is illegal unless approved by the Magisterium. So secrecy is... No, 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 I, I don't want secrets. It's my uncle's. He wouldn't want me to have it anyway. Lyra, look at me. The powers of this world are very strong. Men and women are moved by tides much fiercer than you can imagine. This, hopefully, will provide you with some protection. And so we have this view of him not only as a protector, as a kind, as a person who could be a kind of father figure to Lyra, only she's not looking for that kind of father figure, right? She's looking for the adventurer, um, the paternal figure of Lord Azrael, who who is who is her real uncle, of course, and and who lives a life that she wishes she has, not the life that she finds herself stuck in. And we see how desperate the master is to protect this thing that he views as a kind of bastion against uh, the, the ever-growing power of this other force. He's also trying to protect Lyra because Lord Asriel's investigations are exactly the kind of thing that would give the magisterium pretext to come and get Lyra. Yeah. And we soon realize in the story that Lyra is being sought after for reasons that are not really clear and won't be for a while. But in the context of the show, we can guess it has something to do with that prophecy that's alluded to in the opening titles, right? Yes, of course. Yes. But Lyra doesn't know that and it hasn't really been explained to us in the the storyline itself that anyone but the witches are really talking about this. Um, well, actually, you know, the master says she will have a part to play in this. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, yeah. a lot of portentous chosen one language here, which admittedly is from the books and which I feel like hasn't aged that well. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, my guess would be that Philip Pullman's argument would be is pretty close to that everyone is special. And so the idea that you have a special destiny, in fact, I remember him telling me that he doesn't really believe in destiny. Although, of course, he puts a lot of things in his stories that he doesn't believe exist in real life. But it was sort of less of a, a shop-worn device back then. And um, I kind of wish they had 
downplay the prophecy element because it it does seem a bit tired. But um, the twist that this that the book and that the series gives to that right is it's not like a Harry Potter situation where it's like he shows up at Hogwarts and everyone's like, oh, God, it's the chosen one. Harry knows from the get-go, I mean, almost from day one, that there's something super special about him, that what the master tells the librarian in in their conversation toward the end of this episode is also comes from the book, which is she can't know. She yeah. cannot know that she has a role to play in this or that there's anything special about her. If she does, it's like null and void. And so – the reason I think that stuff still plays pretty well is because Lyra never knows or acts like a person who is grappling with this issue. What becomes tiring to me about Chosen One stories are the sort of endless, like, am I really the Chosen One and what does that mean stuff, which mm. I like get sick of. Lyra never has that problem. Lyra, as you say, is a creature of action not a creature of like mulling over her role in the story. And so that suits her very well and propels the story forward in a way I find very satisfying. Well, also what propels the story is that Lyra um, does not see herself uh, as better than the, uh, despite the lines about how she sees her in the book, how she sees her connection to Jordan college is, you know, you know, giving her an edge over all of the other children in, in Oxford she does not see Roger or the Egyptians as less important than she is, she, or she does not see herself as better than them, which I think is an important part of why she doesn't need to know this. But it is also true that a lot of these, this original, this this early part of establishing the story and these first few episodes is it's it, a lot of what's driving it or a, a lot of what's overshadowing it is Lyra's ignorance. All the things that people have not told her that she has to get out of them and the master's desire to, to literally kill Lord Asriel so that Lyra can have a few more years of safety <laughs> is um, I, we have to see that both as a demonstration of how much he loves her and cares for her, but also as a trap that adults fall into of trying to keep children from growing up, which is which is a theme of this of this trilogy overall, the need that children have to grow up, the the need they have to learn and to know, and the the wrongness of adults trying to arrest that process. That's a great point. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly what he is trying to do in a way that the book will reveal in many, many ways uh, is antithetical to the sort of the, the animating philosophy of this trilogy. And she gets madder and madder as the story goes along with all the stuff that nobody's telling her. <laughs> right. In the way you would, you know, like, why aren't you telling me this? You know, yeah. it's just, it, it's it's part of her her own coming of age, which is what the overall trilogy is. The last thing I'll say about Oxford and Jordan College is that just before um, we recorded this last night, I reread the book Lyra's Oxford, which is a little companion volume that Philip Pullman wrote after the first trilogy came out before the this new trilogy began. Uh, it tells a different story of Lyra's life. Um, in Oxford and at Jordan College. Um, I'm not going to give away really anything about it, but I will just say that if you um, have read the 
books, the first trilogy, and you haven't read this little companion volume, which I think is not like a particularly famous book, uh, it's extremely worth reading, not only because it's a great yarn and because it gives you a different view of Lyra, but because it um, drives home this relationship that how the relationship between Lyra and her home of Jordan and Oxford evolves over the course of these stories. And that's one of the things we're going to see over the course of this series is the way that the way Lyra thinks about home, her home changes, you know, right now it's a place she's really proud of, but she yearns to escape from it in the sort of traditional heroic way. Um, right. The heroes of these kinds of stories often always feel, um, like they need to get out of the place where they began. You know, she finds adventure where she can, but she wants to go North. Um, and you know, in the books, as you said, she has even more of a relationship with the city as a whole, but it will be really interesting. I think to see how her feelings about her adopted home change when she gets out into the world and has a chance to see more of it. And that's where the episode leaves off uh, with Lyra leaving Jordan. In fact, with pretty much everyone leaving Jordan and Oxford, Azrael has already left in a Zeppelin after telling Roger that everyone's special. Uh, Lyra leaves on a Zeppelin with Mrs. Coulter, who says that she's going to make Lyra her special assistant. We see from that Zeppelin, the Egyptians leaving in their boats um, to go to London to try and find the gobblers and find the Egyptian kids who have been taken under the leadership of John Fa and um, and Farda Coram. Um, and we see Roger leaving in the final shot of the episode, in the, like in the back of a van, it seems like, because he got taken by the gobblers. And so we're leaving this place that has been so formative to Lyra that serves as a crucial underpinning to all the adventure that's going to happen in this book. Uh, and we don't know when we'll return just as Lyra doesn't know when she'll return. Um, so overall, what do you, you seems like you're pretty pro on this episode. I, I really like it. I mean, it has a lot of work to do. It has to set up both the, the demons situation, the, the sort of differences between, this world and our world, like they don't have trains, they travel in zeppelins, which seems odd, but you know, and they, but yet they also have helicopters because there's a helicopter in the first scene, a gyropter, yeah. And so you're just sort of like, how exactly does this work? And, um, you know, maybe there's some confusion, but hopefully the sort of energy of the storytelling kind of glides you past, like wondering why they have this technology, but not that technology. But it basically, you know, there's three storylines, or actually, are there three? There might be even more of that. First, there's Lord Azrael's quest to find out what happened to the Grumman expedition and learn more about dust and whether there really is a city in the Northern Lights. There is whatever Mrs. Coulter is up to and how that has united with Lyra's desire to get out of Oxford and also to head north, which is what Lyra ultimately wants, although it seems like Mrs. Coulter is dangling that in front of her as a false promise. There is what's happening to the children with um, with the gobblers and the Egyptians' attempt to rescue their kids. And then there's something going on with the magisterium. So I guess that's like four storylines that we're that we can't be entirely sure what their involvement is in any of these these other plots. So that's a lot of narrative to establish. And I think it does a pretty great job of that. This episode really fulfills for me like the extremely stupid thing that I thought when the movie came out, which was of course that uh, the movie was fine. I thought it was disappointing in many ways, but like, why 
wouldn't someone like the BBC or someone just like make like an eight episode miniseries where they just do the entire books with everything in it and you don't leave anything out. And I'm delighted that that um, fanciful dream that I had, which seemed dead when the movie ended up dead in the water and never spawned a sequel, uh, has in fact come true. And we're getting the like granular level of storytelling detail that I really wanted when I thought about an adaptation of these books. And we'll, we'll see wh- how, whether the series gets better or worse or whether it, it succeeds or fails in doing all that that the younger version of me who read these books and was so entranced by them felt. But uh, this is a, a pretty great start, I think. Agreed. That brings us to the end uh, of episode one. We'll be back next week to discuss episode two of the HBO series called The Idea of North. But before then, drop us a line. Ask us a question, make an observation, argue with us. Uh, Good scholars welcome a hearty debate about dust. The more academic and obscure, the better. Drop a card in the Royal Mail if you like. A Zeppelin crosses the Atlantic to New Denmark twice a day and we'll get it pretty quick. Or if you want, you can just email us at asktheauthority at slate.com. That's asktheauthority.com at slate.com. The Authority is hosted by me, Dan Coyce, with Laura Miller. On Twitter, you can talk to me at at Dan Coyce and to Laura at at Magician's Book. Our producer is Phil Circus, engineering assistance from Rosemary Belson. The editorial director for audio at Slate is Gabriel Roth. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. Mm-hmm.